Chapter 4 The Laying On of Hands A Messenger People In Romans 10, 14, 15, and 17, we read, How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news! Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. It may seem odd that the laying on of hands is an elementary doctrine. For most, the laying on of hands has become an antiquated gesture, an archaic tradition, or a purely ceremonial practice without a readily apparent purpose. It's a lost doctrine, and therefore the majority of believers today have not been taught, and they do not practice one of the fundamental principles of going on to maturity. The nature of religion's structural order is responsible for the doctrine's present neglect. The laying on of hands relates intricately to the authority and power of God's kingdom. In institutions where authority and power are derived from the people, laying on of hands has become irrelevant or unnecessary. Traditional religious orders place the leaders as representatives of the people, offering sacrifices to God on the people's behalf. This is the classic order of priests. Over time, Religious groups have structured their own governance around the characteristics of secular governmental order. The consent of the members is the basis for modern church order. The Roman Emperor Constantine introduced this form of church order when he made Christianity the Roman Empire's official religion. Within the empire, the authority of the church shifted formally from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to empowerment by the Roman Republic. As a state functionary, the church received the favor of the state while producing a citizenry loyal to the government. Being a church member was part of the bundle of civil rights to which the citizen of the state became entitled. Modern churches tend to epitomize a democratic order, where members possess an underlying assumption that it is their right to determine the governmental structure of the church. By making the church an agent of the state, Constantine elevated the power of the state over that of the church, and the right of citizens defined both the participation in the state and in the church. In countries where there is an official state church, all civil rights transfer in whole to a citizen's church membership, and the state church may not deny the rights of citizens who are also church members. This framework of church governance has made its way into churches that are independent of the state, because the basis of authority is derived from the consent of the citizens who are also church members. Whether raised by the state or by the people, the role of leaders as representatives of the people has further required that they be empowered by the people. The pastors and priests function as the representatives of the people to God and not as God's representatives to the people, inasmuch as their authority does not come from God, but from the people. Modern institutions, in many ways, have derived from the Levitical order of priests. In doing so, they have ignored the order and the authority of the New Testament church, derived not from the Levitical priesthood, but from the order of Melchizedek. Both the high priest and the entire order of Melchizedek are established by God's decree, not by the consent of the people. In the New Testament church, Christ is the high priest, forever in the order of Melchizedek. This priesthood supersedes the previous Levitical order and has rendered it obsolete. In Hebrews 7, 11 and 12, it says, If perfection could not have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, Why would there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. 
Christ is the only representative of mankind to God, because he is all that is necessary. As we read in Hebrews 7, 24-27, Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. With the change of priesthood, Christ also administers a return to God's original intent for his relationship to mankind. When God created man, he empowered mankind to act as God's representative. Adam was given authority by God to rule the creation, and God appeared vicariously through him. Adam was the chief priest of the covenant by which God ruled creation. As God's vicar, he was the ruler over all creation. Adam was the king of the earth, a royal priest. The original covenant was that which created the order of royal priests, kings of righteousness and princes of peace. Melchi, king, Zedek, righteousness, is the priesthood that administered the original covenant. Although Adam became disobedient, this order continued until it was changed at Mount Sinai, when God introduced a covenant with Israel. At the cross, however, the order of Levi came to an end, and the order of Melchizedek was reintroduced. In Christ, all the priests of this order would represent God to the people. This is from Hebrews 8, 6, 10, and 13. The ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and it is founded on better promises. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. In the New Testament, people come to God through Christ. He is their high priest, and they are God's people and God's people are messengers. It's the authority of Christ in the New Testament church that gave rise to the apostolos, the messengers of God. The term apostle means sent ones, or messengers. The early apostles understood that they were messengers of Christ, sent with the authority to represent him. The term apostolos is synonymous with the term angelos. Of these messengers, angelos or apostolos, there are those that ascend and those that descend meaning some originate in heaven and some originate on the earth. Jesus spoke to Nathanael about angels ascending and descending. The messengers that originate in heaven are different messengers from those who originate in the earth. The messengers who originate in heaven are angels. These messengers come from heaven to bring a word from God to the earth, and then they return to God. These are spirit beings who normally reside in heaven from whence they are dispatched. These angels are never involved in the administration of the message, and therefore never lay hands upon humans for the impartation of the administration of the message, though they are resisted by the enemy for the messages they carry. The messengers who originate in the earth are people. These angulus may also ascend and descend by being invited into heaven to witness great happenings and to bring back a message. John was the messenger summoned to heaven to see what God was unveiling. In a similar way, Paul speaks of himself as being caught up into the third heaven. The message that these angelos or apostolos carry does not originate with them. 
In ordinary Greek, the term apostolos means postman, or colloquially, mailman. But these messengers are also God's people, representing him to the earth. Christ prepares them carefully so that they are capable of delivering the message and participating in its administration. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which, for ages past, was kept hidden in God, who created all things. That's Ephesians 3. 2-5 2-5 and 8-9. The apostle and the message are meant to be the two components of the same gifts. They are, therefore, given both the message and the administration. The laying on of hands is a crucial part of the administration that causes the message from heaven to be imparted from those to whom it was given to those for whom it is intended who benefit from it. When God releases a message from heaven, it is the message itself that changes the earth. The administration, through the laying on of hands, builds the body of Christ together through the message from heaven. In Ephesians 2, 19-22, it says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Holy Spirit. This impartation is designed to convey the reality of the message with the grace to establish this word through those who have been commissioned and sent by this process. The reality of the kingdom of God is meant to pass from one person to another with an exponential multiplication of the effect of the message. The reason that the messengers, human or angelic, are routinely resisted by the demonic is that the demonic understands that the message itself changes things on the earth. When the message comes, together with the messengers, it has the effect of illuminating the darkness of error and deception. Hidden things are suddenly disclosed. Long-hidden truth emerges, and it may be seen by whoever desires the truth. In the light of that revelation, the deceiver's craft is plainly seen, and the foundation of his house of lies is permanently damaged. People are set free to pursue the path of truth, and only those who thrive in an environment of deceit long for and remain in the darkness. The message itself brings power and authority and must be administered by a messenger prepared and established by the authority of Christ, the head and the high priest. The priests of this order are God's people, his messengers. Christ prepares the messengers before sending them out. He establishes them with his authority amongst those to whom he sends them. And the message they carry is one of the power and authority of the kingdom that binds together the house of God. The laying on of hands is necessary for order, because it presents the message in the form of His grace and goodness through God's people, as was His original intent in creating mankind. The doctrine of the laying on of hands has four major applications. 1. Healing, typically of physical disease and mental disorders. 2. Impartation. 3. Confirmation of gifts and callings and four, commissioning and sending. The laying on of hands represents the primary way in which the anointing, authority, and the order of the kingdom of God is expanded person to person. Each of these applications represents a different aspect of this order. Though they're all together integrated, 
The laying on of hands reveals one's anointing and spreads that anointing to others. It confirms a person's gifts, and it is the process for commissioning a person according to his or her calling in Christ. Healing Healing by the laying on of hands is a demonstration of power with two purposes. One, the demonstration identifies the one laying hands on another as a messenger sent from God. And two, it establishes the authority of the kingdom the messenger represents in the circumstances into which he or she is sent. These dual purposes identify the anointing of a messenger directly to the people and expand the authority of God's kingdom through his messenger for their benefit. God has always spread his kingdom through messengers. He created Adam to extend the kingdom of heaven to the earth. He sent Jesus Christ to reconcile mankind to this original purpose. And when Christ returned to heaven, his body, made up of his people, have continued Christ's work in the earth. The early church continued this practice in which anointed messengers were trained, commissioned, and sent to spread the gospel of the kingdom. Each of these examples shows God's dedication to spreading his kingdom on the earth through his messengers. The first purpose for healing by the laying on of hands is to demonstrate a messenger's anointing, so that the ones witnessing the demonstration can receive the message. For this reason, the more common practice in scripture for healing physical or mental illness is by laying on of hands, though the Lord may accomplish healing without any physical contact. During his ministry, Jesus commonly demonstrated his divine mandate by the laying on of hands for the purpose of healing. In a similar way, the early apostles' message was regularly attended by the laying on of hands for healing. The messenger extends God's goodness and mercy to the one being healed while the power of the Spirit establishes the messenger's credibility. The second purpose for healing by the laying on of hands is to establish the superiority of God's kingdom over its opposition. Any time a messenger is sent in the name of the Lord to establish the kingdom's authority, the messenger is sent with the full expectation of opposition. The Lord equips and prepares the messenger accordingly. The message is not just words, but the demonstration of power and the authority of the kingdom to accomplish change. By clarifying the messenger's anointing, the act of healing, as a miraculous sign performed among the people, establishes the messenger's authority to engage the enemy among the people. God's messengers are made credible among the people and established as figures with authority and power to oppose the kingdom of darkness strongholds that resist the spread of God's kingdom. Not limited to practicing the laying of hands on another, there are numerous examples throughout the New Testament of the works of the messengers who are established further by miraculous signs. In the great commissioning of his disciples, Jesus Christ assured them of the signs and wonders that would attest to their message. In Mark 16, 17 and 18, we read, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, and they will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They'll place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. Paul wrote, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. The miraculous attended those sent for their benefit and for the benefit of those to whom they preached the gospel. Thus, the message was spread person to person, accompanied through the laying on of hands, establishing the message and the messengers with power and authority. A Kingdom of Power Jesus' detractors argued that his displays of power must have been empowered by Satan, specifically concerning his command over demons. 
Responding, Jesus revealed one of the great truths of the kingdom of God, saying, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of heaven has come to you. The heavenly and earthly realms operate according to the orders of power and authority, in which the kingdom of heaven is the seat of the highest order. It is through Christ and his emissaries and such demonstration of power that the kingdom extends to the earth. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of power. When Christ sends one of its representatives to an area or a people, the purpose is to establish the kingdom's authority. Establishing the kingdom's authority allows the messenger to operate in power and elicit change, overcoming the opposition to the kingdom as light brought into a dark place. Laying on of hands is the most basic practice for accrediting God's messengers, giving them the proper weight of authority through signs and wonders. Therefore, the laying on of hands is also fundamental to engaging the enemy with power and authority. This doctrine's loss has contributed directly to the current powerlessness of the church. Leaders are not required to demonstrate that they are operating out of an anointing from God, and their message has devolved from one of a kingdom that triumphs over its enemies to social and historical messages designed for easy consumption. Believers in the present church system are encouraged to see God through their historic and national cultures, or they are exposed routinely to a message designed to spur them to greater levels of activity motivated by their souls. God has always intended to present the message of His kingdom through messengers. Messengers are accredited by the anointing from the Holy Spirit. This anointing is demonstrably evinced by the person's way of life, displaying God's goodness, and through the demonstration of authority over the kingdom of darkness. Delivering the message in this way yields dramatically different results. Shortly after the day of Pentecost, Peter and John healed a crippled man at the gates of the temple, and their actions became a direct challenge to the religious authorities, because Peter and John claimed to have healed the man as messengers sent by Christ. They were swiftly arrested and sternly warned to stop performing miraculous signs and invoking Christ's authority. Because they and others frequently persisted, the gap between the two sides widened and eventually resulted in full-scale persecution of the early believers. The believers survived and thrived during this persecution because they received the message with the power and authority of the kingdom of God demonstrating the effect of overcoming opposition to the kingdom through power. The message is reliably conveyed when supported by a demonstration of power. One example of this principle is when Jesus healed a blind man in the book of John, chapter 9. After this miraculous healing by the laying on of Jesus' hands, the religious authorities rigorously questioned the man who had been blind from birth. They tried to discredit Jesus on theological grounds because he had healed the man on the Sabbath. The man did not have the training to debate with them successfully, but understood that Jesus represented divine authority, given the undeniable evidence of his own healing. The man was not dissuaded by the questions of the religious authorities, even though he could not offer them a theological answer. His faith in Jesus was anchored in his experience. His answers, therefore, were succinct and formidable. He declared simply, One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. His experience demonstrates how healing by the laying on of hands establishes the message and authority of the kingdom in the realms of opposition. Those who rely upon the message of the kingdom must be introduced to the kingdom by an unimpeachable demonstration of authority and power. Paul wrote, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. The message of the kingdom is one of God accrediting Jesus as the patterned son, given rule over principalities and powers.
In Ephesians 1, 20b-22, it says, He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. God established Jesus as the chosen son through the signs and wonders that he demonstrated among the people. God also raised him from the dead, leaving no doubt that Jesus was anointed of God and that he was given all authority in heaven and on earth as the basis for his kingdom. The message itself requires the establishing of power and authority. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5 and 16-70, we read, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Impartation The transferring of gifts of the Spirit from one person to another occurs by the laying on of hands. This process is called impartation. The scope and purpose of impartation distinguishes this aspect of the laying on of hands from the act of healing. Certainly one aspect of what may be imparted to another through the laying on of hands is healing. However, impartation through the laying on of hands is more broadly defined as the means of conveying and delegating power and authority of Christ for specific purposes. These purposes take various forms, but generally may be described as establishing order and empowering the body of Christ. For example, the routine administration associated with the baptism of the Spirit is the laying on of hands. However, there is no specific methodology required for the baptism of the Spirit because Jesus himself baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Among the variety of ways in which one may be baptized in the Spirit, laying on of hands administrates the baptism person to person, furthering the kingdom of God through its messengers. Impartation is one of the administrations permitted by the Holy Spirit for authentication of gifts and government, domus, and the distribution of enablements, pneumatic charismata. A person laying hands on another is purporting to represent the Lord. His credibility to function in that capacity should already be established, but when the person is sent to a different area or people, he must be authenticated to that people and be established in the authority the person represents. As discussed with the specific instances of healing, the laying on of hands accredits the messenger to the people and establishes that person's authority to operate in the capacity in which he or she is sent. When one is sent to impart aspects of the Holy Spirit, the recipients of the laying on of hands may rely upon the messenger's credibility. One being authenticated by laying on of hands and imparting some aspect of the Holy Spirit to another implies that the Spirit has accredited the person to function in the very thing that he imparts. The requirement of accreditation also implies that laying on of hands must be consensual between the administrator of the grace and the recipient. The substance of what is imparted, for example, gifts of the Spirit, is different from the administrative process by which it is imparted. The gifts that are imparted may consist of those things that the Spirit has established in a person following the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The impartations may include gifts of helps and, depending on one's calling, gifts of government as well. Supernatural gifts are necessary for the body of Christ's orderly and effective functioning. Everyone is endowed from birth with certain spiritual gifts, which become activated when he or she is baptized with the Spirit. Paul claimed a gift given to him from his birth, 
and that gift was confirmed after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus by Jesus himself. Other gifts are supplied as they're needed. We read in 1 Corinthians 2, 8-10 and 29-31, To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of that same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts. And now I will show you the most excellent way. The gifts that are necessary for some, but not inherent, may be supplied through the administration of impartation. The substance of impartation by the laying on of hands both furthers and is facilitated by the order of God's house. Paul's letter to the Romans and Corinthians, as a spiritual father to those believers, show how impartation is a part of this order. In Corinth, there were others, such as Apollos and Peter, who served the body of Christ, but Paul had a fatherly responsibility for them. Part of his duty was to ensure that they were properly equipped to function individually and corporately. Considering their condition, he was keenly aware of their need for greater wisdom and a keener sensitivity to the spirit of prophecy. In a similar way, Paul was intimately aware of the hardships of the believers in Rome, and he longed to visit them, in part to supply spiritual gifts to them. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. As a spiritual father watching over a portion of his family, Paul knew what gifts were necessary for the effective functioning of that part of his family. One of the active duties of a spiritual father is to closely monitor the spiritual condition of those under his care. Where there are deficits that may be remediated by impartations through the laying on of hands, it is a part of the administration undertaken for their care and supply. Being established as fundamental to this order, the practice of the impartation of gifts through the laying on of hands should be widely practiced throughout the body of Christ subject to the restrictions related to the credibility of the one who imparts and to the consent of the one who receives. Confirmation Confirmation of one's gifts and calling traditionally occurred by the laying on of hands. Certain gifts of the Spirit are resident within a person, from his mother's womb, and a person's calling is irrevocably determined by God. Confirmation of one's gifts, however, come after a time when the individual has been functioning in his or her gifts to the extent that others can testify of this person's readiness to function on a broader sphere in these gifts. When believers reach the place of maturity, confirmation of that maturity and of the gifts that support their work is accomplished through the laying on of hands. Timothy provides an example of this process in the New Testament church. Timothy was called, together with Paul, to carry the word of the Lord among the Gentiles. His specific gift was that of being an apostle. When the time came for his gifts to be confirmed, the leaders in two cities, Lystra and Iconium, attested to Timothy's faithfulness because he had learned and become proficient in his gifts and gained an excellent reputation among the believers there. He had reached such a level of competence in his functioning that he was recommended to join Paul's company. And because Paul and the elders of these cities knew Timothy, they confirmed the gift in Timothy through the laying on of hands. When Timothy was tested, his authentication to function had already been established, and Paul could encourage him by reminding Timothy of this confirmation. 
Another facet of this confirmation practice was to establish the believers who had come out of the pagan world into the kingdom of God through the laying on of hands. This is also another example of confirming one's gifts because each person's calling, and therefore inherent gifts, comes from one's identity in the kingdom of God. This confirmation enables one to function in spiritual gifts because the confirmation is established on the credibility of another. In the kingdom, no one has to make his or her own way to prove his right to function. The ones in authority make room for others to encourage their functions, and when they have shown a level of maturity commensurate with their calling, they are confirmed in these places by those who have the authority to do so. Confirmation presumes that the person is operating in power and authority, and this removes the need for self-authentication and provides continuity and expansion of service to the body of Christ. Today, confirmation has been reduced to a ceremony for the induction of a person into a membership of religious groups. Biblical confirmation, however, is an act that recognizes the transformation of someone from the pagan culture to a son of God. It also establishes those who have been functioning in their gifts and callings at a level of maturity sufficient to be trustworthy and able to function in a wider sphere than before being confirmed. Commissioning and Sending In the New Testament, the pattern by which one was sent into the ministry began with the person being confirmed in a particular gift and calling and was followed by a period of work within a certain location. After that, the Holy Spirit, through a prophetic utterance, would establish the person's readiness, commissioning him or her to be sent into a broader sphere of their calling. The sending would be undertaken by those in authority where the individual had worked and where he had become recognized in faithfulness. The leaders would recite their observation of the growth and maturity of the person as confirmation of his gifts and calling, and would lay hands on that person and send him out from that location into the broader reaches of his destiny. Paul and Timothy's journeys demonstrate this particular pattern. Paul had already possessed the gift of apostleship and was functioning in it for an entire year in the city of Antioch. His functioning left no doubt of his readiness and reliability. The Holy Spirit ordained the occasion for the sending through a prophetic utterance. In Acts 13, 2-4, it reads, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for that work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. The company of elders, in agreement with the Holy Spirit and with one another, publicly placed their hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them out to the work to which the Holy Spirit had called them. In this sending, they were accompanied by the Holy Spirit inasmuch as this was his orderly administration. Timothy repeated the same pattern. Acts 16, 1 and 2 tells the reader that Timothy was already functioning in his gift and calling in the cities of Lystra and Iconium before he was ready to accompany Paul, Silas, Luke, and others. The Holy Spirit spoke of his readiness through a prophetic utterance, and then the elders and Paul laid hands on him and commissioned him into his work and calling. Neither Paul nor Timothy sent themselves into the calling and ministries. This orderly process contrasts starkly with the way that people come forth in ministry today. In the New Testament church, those in authority attested to the veracity of the prophetic word and joined in the commissioning process to release those being sent. The ones being sent were commissioned to function either in new locations or were given a wider increase of authority and scope of function consistent with their calling. In most of the historic churches, however, 
Almost anyone who is a baptized member and meets other requirements relating to marital status and other background and financial tests may enroll in schools for formal training and the doctrines unique to that denomination. Anyone who feels a call to ministry may initiate the process of entering ministry. This process typically involves first attending some form of Bible school training followed by an apprenticeship under the pastoral leadership of a congregation within that denomination. Upon completing a prescribed course of study, the person is assigned work within the organization and careers are choreographed through the patterns common to that denomination. Alternatively, one may pursue missionary work in some foreign destination, usually determined by one's ability to raise his or her own financial support and completion of outreach ministry training. These models do not recognize, foster, or support anyone's gift or calling. Callings for ordinary members of the denomination are typically relegated to being financial supporters of the denomination and the ministries of those who lead. The laying on of hands for commissioning and sending is a biblical pattern that stands on the order of God's house. In this pattern, those who are well known for their reliable work are commissioned and sent to their callings. The ones commissioning and sending them are spiritual fathers who are themselves well known for their godly character and reliable work of leading the house of God. As involved fathers, they're able to recognize the gifts and calling of those under their care and to nurture those gifts to maturity. This is a deliberate process that is personal in scope and application and knowledgeable of the ways of God. Those under such care will consistently transition to maturity and competent functionality. Their commissioning will occur as a matter of course. Whenever someone is ready to function among the believers in his or her calling, such a person is commissioned and sent by the laying on of hands. The elementary doctrine of the laying on of hands has been largely the elementary doctrine of laying on of hands has been largely neglected in present church administrations. As a result, believers are unaware of the central role of this doctrine, spreading the gospel of the kingdom through qualified messengers. They do not understand the different purposes for the laying on of hands or how these expressions of the doctrine are interrelated. The laying on of hands is the defining doctrine for extending the kingdom of God into the earth through the people of God, his family.
Timothy repeated the same pattern. Acts 16, 1-2. Acts 16, 1 and 2 tells the reader that Timothy was already functioning in his gift and tells the reader that Timothy was already functioning in his gift and calling in the tells the reader that Timothy was already functioning in his gift and calling in the cities of Lystria and the cities of Lystra and Iconium before he was ready to accompany Paul, Silas, Luke, and others. The Holy Spirit spoke of his readiness through a prophetic utterance, and then the elders and Paul laid hands on him and commissioned him into his work and calling. Neither Paul nor Timothy sent themselves into the calling and ministries. This orderly process contrasts starkly with the way that people come forth in ministry today. In the New Testament church, those in authority attested to the veracity of the prophetic word and joined in the commissioning process to release those being sent. The ones being sent were commissioned to function either in new locations or were given a wider increase of authority and scope of function consistent with their calling. In most of the historic churches, however, in most of the historic churches, however, Almost anyone who is baptized, almost anyone who is a baptized member and meets other requirements relating to marital status and other background and financial tests, relating to marital status and other background and financial tests, may enroll in schools for formal training in the doctrine. May enroll in schools for formal training in the doctrines. May enroll in schools for formal training in the doctrines unique to that demon. May, enro- may enroll in schools for formal training in the. De- <clears throat> may enroll in schools. Good Lord. Another background in financial tests may enroll in schools. <clears throat> may enroll in school. <clears throat> Relating to marital and status and other background in financial tests may enroll in schools for formal training in the doctrines unique to that demonstration. And doctrines unique to that denomination. Relating to marital status and other background and financial tests, may enroll in schools for formal training in the, may enroll in schools for formal training in the doctrines unique to that denomination. Anyone who feels a call to ministry may initiate the process of entering ministry. Anyone who feels a call to ministry may initiate the process of entering ministry. This process typically involves first attending some form of Bible school training followed by an apprenticeship under the pastoral leadership of a congregation within that denomination. Upon completing a prescribed course of study, the person is assigned work within the organization and careers are choreographed through the patterns common to that denomination. Alternatively, one may pursue missionary work in some foreign destination, usually determined by one's ability to raise his or her own financial support and completion of outreach ministry training. These models do not recognize, foster, or support anyone's gift or calling. Callings for ordinary members of the denomination for ordinary members of the denomination are typically relegated to being financial supporters of the denomination. Callings for the ordinary members of the denomination are typically rele- are typically relegated to being financial supporters of the denomination and the ministries of those who lead. The laying on of hands for commissioning and sending the laying on of hands and commissioning and sending is a biblical pattern and stands on the order of God's house. In this pattern, those who are well known for their reliable work are commissioned and sent to their callings. The ones commissioning and sending them are spiritual fathers who are themselves well known for their godly character and reliable work of leading in the house 
godly character and reliable work in le- godly character and reliable work of leading the house of God. <clears throat> callings for callings for ordinary members of callings for ordinary members of callings for ordinary members of the denomination are typically relegated to being financial supporters of the denomination and the ministries of the denomination and the ministries of those who lead the laying on of hands for the commissioning and sending the laying on of hands for commissioning and sending is a biblical pattern that stands on the order of god's house in this pattern those who are well known for their reliable work are commissioned and sent to their callings the ones commissioning and sending them are spiritual fathers who are themselves well known for their godly character and reliable work of leading the house of god as involved fathers, they're able to recognize the gifts and calling of those under their care and to nurture those gifts to maturity. This is a deliberate process that is personal in scope and application and no- This is a deliberate process that is personal in scope and application and knowledgeable and, and knowledgeable of the ways of God. Those under such care will those under such care will consistently transition to maturity and competent functionality. Their commissioning will occur as a matter of course. And whenever someone is ready to function among the believers, when, whenever someone is ready to function among the believers in his or her calling, such a person is commissioned and sent by the laying on of hands. The elementary doctrine of the laying on of hands has been largely the elementary doctrine of laying on of hands has been largely neglected in present church administrations. As a result, believers are unaware of the central role of this doctrine spreading the gospel. As a result, as a result, believers are unaware of the central role. Believers are unaware of the central role of this doctrine spreading the gospel of the kingdom through qualified are Believers are unaware of the central role of this doctrine spreading the gospel of the kingdom through qualified messengers. They do not understand the different purposes for the laying on of hands, or how these expressions of the doctrine are inver- or how, or how these, or how these expressions of the doctrine are interrelated. The laying on of hands is the defining doctrine. The laying on of hands is the defining doctrine for extending the kingdom of God into the earth through the people of God, His family. The laying on of hands is the defining doctrine for extending the kingdom of God into the earth through His. For extending the kingdom of God into the earth through the people of God, his family. Through the people of God, his family. <clears throat>